FX Medicine is not just a podcast. We also have free articles, infographics, and a monthly email newsletter, all designed to build your clinical expertise. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for our newsletter and get your latest free content. Welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional and complementary medicine. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, where we live and work, and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. With us today is Rachel Arthur, a widely published naturopath and nutritionist with a special interest in diagnostics. With over 30 years experience in both the clinic and the classroom, she is considered a leading nutritional educator, delivering postgraduate training and mentoring to doctors, pharmacists, dietitians, naturopaths, and other health professionals. Rachel shares her wealth of knowledge generated from thorough research and ongoing clinical experience via a multitude of platforms, including podcasts, mentoring programs, live appearances, and her extensive online digital resource library. As you will discover, she is a truth seeker who does things differently. Welcome to FX Medicine, Rachel. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks, Emma. Great to be here. Now, today we're going to explore your time in the industry over the last 30 years, and we're going to learn from your extensive experience, and then we're going to pick your clinical and research brain by taking a deep dive into one of the most commonly prescribed nutrients in clinical practice, which is zinc. I'm excited. (laughs) Me too. But to, to sort of kick things off, can you share with us how you first decided to become a naturopath? What influenced that decision and where did your passion for natural health come from? Well, like you, I love hearing people's versions of how this started for them because they're all so different, aren't they? Mm. I, I wasn't somebody who visited a naturopath first, I have to say. I didn't know it was a job or a career. Mm-hmm. I was sort of heading towards science generally okay. when I was in high school and leaving high school. When I look back, though, I can see that the influences were there. Like my mum, far from being a hippie, but she was very health conscious. I remember the bottles of pills on the kitchen table. Mm -hmm. Everything was handmade, all the food. She was very attentive to health and nutrition. So when I look back, the influence was definitely there. Mm. I was more the hippie than she was, left home, uh, hitchhiked up the East Coast. Mm -hmm. True story. So I end up in Byron Bay in my gap year, And I end up not just discovering that you could be a naturopath, but sharing a house with someone who was a naturopath. Mm. So it was like, oh, oh, that's a thing. Oh, okay. Well, I love science. I'm kind of interested in health. You know, maybe when I'm done gallivanting around northern New South Wales, I might come back and study this thing called naturopathy, which Mm. is what I did. There's lots of sort of twists and turns in there. I do love that at first my application to study at SSNT was rejected, which I love to remind them of all the time. Uh, (laughs) I always say, what was it about me that you thought I wasn't going to be a good student or a good naturopath? Yeah. But anyway, that's the short version of that story of how I ended up studying naturopathy. Mm, Really interesting. I always really enjoy hearing those sort of preliminary pathways and how they form. But, you know, can you talk us through how did you build your brand within the healthcare sector? And can you give us a couple of examples of some opportunities that presented? Well, I mean, like you said, 30 years, so you fit a lot into Mm. 30 years and I won't bore us with all the detail, but 
I think you've hit something right there in terms of using that term opportunities because I certainly didn't start out with a vision about where I was going to end up. Mm, Like everyone else, I was so passionate about what I was learning and I was so thrilled about private practice Mm. because it is such an exhilarating part of what we are trained to do. So I was working in a health food store towards the latter part of my training Mm -hmm. and I continued to do that when I graduated and then they opened up a consulting room. So I started to practice from there. I ended up going back to study because I was actually looking to qualify to get into medicine. Okay. The arrival of two babies uh, sort of changed that (laughs) plan. So once I had my kids, I'm in my early 20s, I'm still in private practice. I work for a year for a pharmaceutical company. I then move across into a supplement company where I'm working in field technical support. Mm -hmm. And then probably when I move into my 30s is when I start picking up casual lecturing. And I also started tutoring at Monash Uni in the medical degree. Mm -hmm. They were all kind of just opportunities that arise. Again, I didn't have that idea. They sort of popped up and I seized them. Probably the biggest turning point for me was when someone that a lot of your listeners will know, Lisa Oates, approached me Mm -hmm. and she was already helping Leslie Braun with the first edition of Braun and Cohen. Okay. And Lisa said, we need more researchers, we need more writers, and I've mentioned your name to Leslie. So obviously that started a really big new chapter mm. of being a writer, being a researcher and and open up a lot of doors from there. So I spend the first few years while I'm doing my thesis actually working extensively in the corporate health field, pick up work at the university as a research assistant as well, doing lots of research and writing, not only for Braun and Cohen, but also there was a journal around at that time called Journal of Complementary Medicine. Oh, yeah. A lot of people might know. Yeah, Yeah. so I was one of the frequent contributors to that. It goes on and on. Eventually, Southern Cross University went, all right, you're not bad. Yeah, you can teach. And so I end up teaching and, and supervising there at Southern Cross until when I finally went, that's it, I'm done. I'm done with all you know, working for other tertiary institutions. Mm. And again, it wasn't my vision to kind of create my own brand of education or to step out independently. It's always come from other wiser women, I've got to say. So it was someone else who was watching me often doing the corporate circuit, you know, where I was speaking on behalf of other companies, supplement or service provider companies, And she said to me, you know what, you should record these (laughs) famous Mm. last words. And so that was around about that time, about 2012. And so basically I did. Started recording things. I launched the um, Update and Under 30 series and started uh, delivering my own mentoring program. And basically I've been doing the same thing ever since. Yeah, and I feel that you have a good eye for picking a market need. And and filling gaps that are there. I hope so. I mean, I think it comes from being fortunate enough to have lots of conversations, lots of touch points with people in our profession. Mm. So if I'm group mentoring, I'm constantly paying attention to what's going on for people. What are their strengths? What are their challenges? What are the gaps? What are the needs that aren't being met? And so I'm just really paying attention to that and then thinking, well, is that something I can do something about? And, you know, Emma, there are a lot of conversations I have. You'd probably be surprised how much of my time is taken up with me contacting other people Mm -hmm. and saying, do you know, there's a need here. I'm not the person who can, you know, meet this need, but I might reach out to a variety of my contacts who I think a better position to help our profession. It's a real privilege, Mm. but it it is something that I feel obviously passionate about. I think that as a professional group, we do need 
ongoing support in a variety of ways. We have more than we've ever had, but yeah, I'm always sort of chipping away, trying to bring other people in and and see if we can bolster that even further. Mm, Which is brilliant because we do need more support. There's various ways to get it, but we could always do with more. Mm. One thing I think about is you're such a busy person or doing lots of different things. How do you split your time and how do you find a Mm. sense of balance between all your projects? Because I know a lot of practitioners, you know, wear more than one hat and it Mm. would be great to get a couple of tips from you on this. I think I probably am, of course, very still diverse and you know, divided in how I spend my time now. But when I look back, it was really my 30s and my 40s when I was bringing up my kids single-handedly and I was doing all those things that I mentioned before, like working as a research assistant, writing for the Journal of Complementary Medicine, Mm. writing for Braun and Cohen. I always say that there was a period in my career where I just had to say yes to everything. Mm. And I do say that to upcoming practitioners and graduates, if you can, just saying yes to whatever opportunities come your way is a good thing early in your career. And it is dizzying because, of course, that's a lot of different roles, like you just said. Mm. And I think it's appropriate that I say, you know, that was a period that's a bit of a blur of all of those things. <laughs> it was extremely busy. I think now I feel that a little bit later in my career, I now have the privilege of saying no. Mm. So I don't need to say yes and I choose not to say yes to everything and I have that opportunity for a little bit more discernment so I can be a little bit more focused and not split my attention quite so much. I think... There is a question now for me whenever the opportunities do come up where I think, well, in how many ways does this give back? Mm. So either does it give back to the profession? Yes. But in how many ways does it deliver to my business or something like that? So that probably sounds quite strategic, but I I think you have to be. You Mm. get to a certain point that you have to be very strategic about the finite amount of time and energy and resources you have. When you're done saying yes to every opportunity and you're on that other side where you're trying to really, I guess, streamline things and work in a way that's not working harder all the time but but working more effectively. Mm, and I love that piece of advice of saying yes to every yeah. opportunity in the early stages because my thing was always say yes and the work out the how later. And yeah. it's amazing how <laughs> your your skill set gets stretched like a rubber band because you have to learn new skills in order to deliver what you've said yes to. So I completely concur with that. It's scary, mm. but it is such a growth opportunity. It is. And I think that stretching like a rubber band is such a good metaphor because this number of situations I found myself in thinking, oh, well, guess I'll work this out. You know, <laughs> like, that did, as you say, really stimulate growth. And I could then add more skills to my skill list. I was mm. like, oh, okay, I can do that. Mm, yeah. I love that. Now, what I think is that you have a unique lens on the industry and I'd love to do a bit of a zoom out and and ask your opinion on how do you feel our industry is tracking as a whole? You know, what are our collective strengths and our collective weaknesses? Mm, I think that maybe I have one sort of set of responses to us as a profession and then a separate set of responses to the industry side. Mm, so, okay. you know, I would kind of put that line between them being in, you know, the related industry like product and service providers and things like that. Yeah. If I'm looking at us as a profession, mm. I think that there's this one big persisting challenge and it was there when I graduated and I think it's diminished a little bit but it's still certainly present with recent graduates mm. and that is, I think, a challenge of knowing our own worth. Mm. and. I mean, we've got this extraordinary paradox going on. If you think about what is involved in our training, Mm. many of us can 
you know, itemised that it's effectively the first couple of years of a medical degree mm. and then some, you know, then it's all the modality-specific knowledge, then it's supervised clinic and what have you. And I think that we know that at a micro level and even at a macro level, if you look particularly at Australia and New Zealand, mm-hmm. the quality of our training, the quality of our graduates and where we sit on the global stage, mm. we are right up there. We are right up near the apex. We are considered leaders that we are really progressive in our approach to naturopathic medicine, all of those sorts of things. And that has been really showcased, particularly I've noticed this year at some of those big international conferences where we've got this incredible, almost over-representation of Australian researchers and Mm. educators and clinicians. And so I think if we can remind ourselves because I, I don't think we all are born with innate self-worth. And I think that naturopathy has had this kind of underdog identity lurking around it for a long time mm. where people go, oh, yes, but it's on the edge. It's still being, you know, considered fringe by some. Mm-hmm. But I think that when I look around and I look at a lot of my peers who I regard as being highly successful. Mm-hmm. And these are in really different or, or um, divergent fields. So whether that's private practice or academia, creating their own products, mm-hmm. you know, or work, working in the corporate space, I look at these people and I think they know their self-worth or it isn't apparent that they question the quality of their qualifications. Mm. And I think that that confidence that they've had not only in our medicines but also in themselves Mm. is what's really probably contributed substantially to their success. Certainly some people have more confidence than others but I think we have to actively work on fostering it Mm, within the profession and within ourselves. Like we really need to keep giving ourselves a little slap on the face and going, hang on, I've done the training. I've done, you know, X number of years of this number of medical units. I am incredibly well-versed and uh, well-equipped. I think probably that is the biggest thing that I think we're still tackling. Mm, yeah, and, and that's also where mentoring can be very helpful to remind ourselves of what an incredible dynamic profession we are. Now, I know you have a very big interest in diagnostics and you're really skilled at interpreting pathology. Mm. When you did your honours at Southern Cross Uni, which, Mm. congrats, you got first-class honours, that's very amazing, Um, (laughs) your thesis was titled Zinc Assessment in Australian Naturopathic Practice, Its Influences, Methodology and Perceived Validity. So I want to deep dive into this very commonly prescribed nutrient. And I have to say, in researching this episode, I found myself in such a rabbit hole of zinc literature. There was so much more out there than I even realised. Now, it is one of the most widely prescribed supplements in clinical practice due to its very diverse range of indications. And after iron, it is the second most abundant micronutrient in the human body. It's estimated that up to around 17% of the global population is at risk for inadequate zinc intake. So it's something that comes in front of us all the time. And we know that zinc is ubiquitous. It's utilised in more than 300 enzyme pathways. So I guess my question, Rachel, is where do we start this zinc story? I know you love using caricatures and and stories to help ground what can sometimes be seen as tricky science. So maybe you can reacquaint us with this mineral from a different perspective. Well, I mean, like you said, I mean, I wrote a thesis on it. Um, (laughs) We were just working out how long ago that was. That's scary. And I was mentioning to you just before that writing that thesis meant that I literally was reading zinc 
research every day for about 18 months. Mm. So it is extraordinary to, like you say, to, you just said, you know, you've learned so much and I'm sure you knew a lot already, but just by doing a a quick refresh where you're Mm. like, oh gosh, that's new. And I guess one thing that helps us to not become frustrated by the dynamism of zinc, (laughs) but recognise that it is a fate complete, something that has to happen, is how recently it was discovered. So not the element, but the discovery that it was essential for humans only occurred in 1964. Mm. So I think about zinc as really being the newish kid on the block. The mm. only micronutrient that was discovered subsequent to zinc as being essential was selenium in the 1970s. Okay. That means that we are genuinely in our infancy of really understanding zinc, who zinc is, how they operate. And the way that I think about zinc is I talk about zinc the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. If you go back to the original definition of zeitgeist, which is not really the way we tend to use it now, it was an invisible agent or force Mm -hmm. that dominates the characteristics of something. Okay. And I feel like that term really encapsulates so much about zinc because, as you said, it's kind of everywhere. You know, (laughs) that often cited quote of, being a component of more than 300 enzymes, that's actually the tip of the iceberg Mm. because zinc, in addition to that, is a key stability factor in structures. So it stabilizes other cellular components like our plasma membranes. We have come to discover that zinc is also a very recently discovered second messenger. So some of us know second messengers like calcium, for Mm -hmm. example, and how its engagement with receptors on cell surfaces trigger mechanisms inside the cell that then basically convey the messages that neurotransmitters or hormones are trying to send. Zinc is one of those. Okay. So... We just go, oh, the 300 enzymes, that's just the beginning. When we say ubiquitous, we really mean ubiquitous. Mm. Like it is everywhere. It has a finger in every single pie. And that's why its disease associations are so insanely long and the signs and symptoms associated with a deficiency of it are so broad but also ambiguous Mm. at times. So to speak to the other element of zeitgeist, which is this invisibility, right? A zeitgeist Mm. is an invisible agent. Zinc is, you know, to quote that old ad, a slippery little sucker. It's (laughs) really hard to track and trace. And you can think about that in really literal terms, like trying to measure it. Mm, That's what my thesis was on. That's what people have been trying to refine since the 1980s and we're not there yet. We still find it impossible to measure, impossible to find a, a reliable marker of it. And this is because we have such tight control of zinc in a way and such tight kind of regulatory control at a cellular level. But also this invisibility, I always think about zinc as kind of being here today and gone, not quite tomorrow, but unlike iron, which it's constantly compared with for good reason, as you've mentioned, Mm. we don't have stores. Mm. We Mm. do not have active stores of zinc. So while we've said kind of the whole body not just anatomically, but physiologically relies on this micro mineral, this trace element. We don't have active stores of that. So it kind of gives us that sense of vulnerability and kind of fragility of of status in a way. Mm, It it is just so complex. It it really is related to everything from gut to immune to mood to, I mean, literally everything 
can you let us know where you see zinc having particular benefits and and in what conditions do you see it as as a bit of a go-to or where it particularly shines, I guess, is what I'm trying to work out. Yeah, and I think that probably is the way, like, where it shines is Mm. probably, like, I think if we go back one, I think you said, you know, where does it make sense or where would it be your go-to? I think there are kind of three key tenants. The first is growth because let's never forget that that's how we discovered zinc was essential to humans. Yeah. It was a, a medical graduate travelling in Iran, Prasad, who was aware of stunting mm-hmm. and he was like, look at all these people that are, that are really abnormally short. That's how we discovered zinc's essentiality for humans. Okay. Now, we go, well, we're not seeing stunting because we know we're not mm. <clears throat> as a population in Australia generally. But how do we recognise impaired growth? It's really easy at the pointy ends. So think about it. Intrauterine growth retardation. We know zinc deficiency is a major issue behind that. Mm. We know that zinc deficiency is a major influence in kids that have failure to thrive, mm. you know, that just aren't quite meeting their growth landmarks. They're the easy ones to spot. In the rest of us kind of middle ground dwellers that aren't at a pointy end of growth, it's poor hair growth, poor nails, poor wound healing. Mm. You know, that, that's what we have to look for. The second kind of landmark feature, I would say, is immunity, and that Mm. is every possible aspect of immunity. So obviously this is zinc's largest claim to fame outside of stunting because we know from zinc interventions all over the world, particularly in developing countries, that just ensuring people are zinc adequate is on par with clean water in Mm. terms of preventing infection and surviving infection and things like that. And the third key area would be gut. Mm. And this is becoming, as the gut is, so complex. Uh, This is a big area for zinc that is very multi-layered and multifaceted. So we know zinc adequacy is critical for eubiosis, mm-hmm. but we know that it offers so much more. It reduces increased gut permeability. It helps repair stomach lining in terms of gastritis and ulcers and so on and so forth. I think where it shines, mm-hmm. maybe I'd throw in mental health in there. Mm, okay. In addition to what we've talked about, I'd probably put that in as an extra. Okay. It's hard to know where to stop, isn't it? But I think, you know, growth, immunity and gut primarily, and then Mm. mental health. I think if we can, you know, it's nice to to sort of set some parameters around where it should particularly pop up in our brains when we're working with patients. Mm. In my time in clinical practice, it has been so confusing (laughs) to know exactly what form to use and then what dose to prescribe. Can you talk us through the various forms and then highlight which ones you think are the best to use and why? Because honestly, the forms, the types, they just keep more and more keep coming across my my knowledge base and it is confusing. Yeah, I think this is a really common source of confusion Mm. and I think This is one of the big things that I've been trying to address in creating this nutrient prescribers program that we're just building for 2024, Mm. which is the way we've been taught nutrition is we get taught about zinc, like as an entity that exists on its own. Mm. But what we have to remember is that the form changes the function. Yeah. And the dose, obviously, you know, there's there's that wonderful quote, which I'm going to butcher, which is something, you know, uh, whether something's a medicine or a poison is all about the dose, Mm -hmm. you know, that Paracelsus said. You know, like form and dose change everything. So in this Nutrient Prescribers Program, we're trying to give people a method for formulating nutritional prescriptions Mm. because I think that's where people just feel like they're falling off a cliff. They go, well, I know zinc is needed. Yeah. (laughs) And they're right. And then they go, what form and what dose and at what time of the day would you administer that? Mm. 
So the place that we start with the framework that we're using in NPP is we start with application. Mm. So the question is, is, what's your treatment objective? Yeah. And really getting people to be crystal clear because sometimes we do a lot of hand-waving about therapeutic objectives. Mm. We'd like them to have more zinc. No, no, no. <laughs> so what are you actually saying? Are you saying that you need to meet a shortfall that is there in their diet that they are unable to redress with their food choices? Mm. Or do you have something more explicit? Is it about immunity yeah. or is it about gut? What is your treatment objective or objectives? Mm -hmm. So we have to start with that because that is the strongest first indication of form. Yeah. Okay. What form you're going to use. I mean, you think about it. You know this. I know this. Lots of our listeners will know this. If I want to work on somebody's stomach lining, mm -hmm. I'm going to use zinc carnosine. Yeah. And zinc carnosine will be medicinal, but lots of other zinc forms would actually be meddlesome. They mm. would be problematic in that stomach. So that is such a great example. Or if I want to reduce the severity and duration of an upper respiratory tract infection, I'm going to use zinc glucamate yeah. as a lozenge very specifically because I know that that will directly release the zinc ions in the nasopharyngeal area and have a direct antiviral action. Mm. But do I use zinc gluconate when I want to treat hyperbilirubinemia? No. <laughs> do I use it when I want to treat gastritis? No. So I think that we have to start using a framework that mm. helps us to methodically answer these questions. So we start with application. Yeah. What's your treatment objective? And then we look to the literature for guidance about what form of zinc is best indicated in that. The most common application, of course, that and the burning question for a lot of people is what about when it is just a shortfall? Yeah. What about when it's not a specific indication like that? Well, this is the great source of frustration, right? Because we're all using zinc salts, just a variety of different zinc salts. So whether we're using zinc sulfate or we're using a zinc chelate, like a citrate mm. or a picolinate, they're all much of a muchness. They've all got their strengths and limitations and there are certain areas where they shine mm. and there's certain areas where you go, oh, I probably, you know, if someone's prone to nausea, we're not going to give them zinc sulfate, right, because it's the strongest emetic form of all zincs. So I think we're really desperate for innovation in the area of mineral supplements. Okay. There's a lot of research going on. There's a lot of research that has the runs on the board where zinc and other minerals are being presented as dientripeptides. Okay. That shows superiority. And there's some really easy ways to understand why that would be so much more effective, so much more bioavailable than a zinc salt or a chelate. So I think hopefully we're going to see them come onto the market. Yeah. And, and look, for now, the framework of, first of all, focusing on what is your treatment objective and then matching the objective to the form with the knowledge that the form changes function. I think that's something that if we can all keep that in mind, we're going to be steps ahead. Absolutely. But when it comes to dose, I mean, looking at labels, it is confusing. Can we just kind of get on the same page with that first? Because when we're talking about elemental zinc, each of the various forms of zinc contain different amounts of elemental zinc, which refers to the weight of the zinc molecule itself. So a label might state zinc citrate, 95.8 milligrams, but that's equivalent to 30 milligrams of elemental zinc. Now, when it comes to therapeutic doses, what do you recommend? So it follows the same principle, mm. which is I'm getting people to refine their thinking and be really explicit about what their therapeutic objective is. And then we see that form follows because it dictates function, and then that will also dictate dose. Because mm. if we go back to what we were talking about before, 
If we were using zinc carnosine for gastritis, you and I might use 15 milligrams, Mm. right, of elemental zinc. Yeah. And we might use that twice a day. We might use it three times a day. But really it's quite a low dose Mm. compared to some other applications and different forms. Because if you follow the evidence-based protocol for upper respiratory tract infection where you use those zinc lozenges, Mm. you're getting up around 100 milligrams a day. And that's effective. That works a treat. And no one is suggesting for a second that that's excessive. I know you and I might talk about excess zinc a little bit later, but Mm. it is about what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. So I think that we just have to go back and we have to follow those steps. What's the therapeutic objective? Therefore, what's the application? Therefore, Mm. what's the form? What does the evidence support? You're basically being led to dose very clearly if you take that path. Yeah, which is very reassuring. And and looking at the literature for this episode, you know, it's very clear what doses do get the outcomes that you want to replicate in your patients. Now, one thing that worries me that you know, zinc is in a lot of supplements and, and many practitioners and people that self-prescribe often don't recognise that cumulative dose when taking multiple supplements. And zinc has an upper tolerable limit set by the NHMRC with specific reference to the potential that high-dose zinc may induce a copper deficiency. So can you just speak to that? And then how can we identify when zinc is too high? I mean, what would we see as clinicians? Mm. It's such a good aspect to cover, I think. Look, the upper tolerable limit is hotly debated. Mm. And this is hotly debated internationally by very highly respected researchers, leaders in, in zinc kind of thought. The upper tolerable limit in Australia, as you mentioned, is set at 40 milligrams for adults and depending on the age of the child, anywhere from five milligrams for under one-year-olds, but often around 10 to 20 milligrams for primary school children. So the hot debate that's going on on an international level is that the evidence that too much zinc produces copper deficiency is really patchy. Okay. That it certainly has been demonstrated, but there are many instances where it hasn't. Okay. And so that's the thing that continues to further discussion, you know, or prompt this kind of reflection. I think one big misunderstanding is that in the studies where excess zinc supplementation did appear to have a negative effect on copper status, it wasn't that it lowered copper levels in the blood. Okay. It was that it produced, if you like, change in functional markers consistent with copper impairment. Mm. So that's things like your neutrophil count dropping, mm. your platelet count dropping, potentially your HDLs dropping. Because copper is quite a tricky beast itself mm. and it can have quite a Machiavellian or, or kind of really hard to pin deficiency picture that tends to emerge differently in different people. Mm, okay. And and certainly those serum copper and, and plasma copper levels are not the be-all and end-all of, you know, reflecting copper status. Mm. So that's the first thing to say. We do need to be on the watch for that. I have seen it. So I have actually, unfortunately, had a few paediatric patients who were treated by someone else or DIY-dosed yeah. by mum or dad, and they were given excessive amounts of zinc over a period of time, and I've seen the neutropenia and the thrombocytopenia, and actually, in a couple of kids, I've actually seen the serum copper mm, drop okay. very low because copper should be really high in kids. It's incredibly important for kids mm. as part of their neurological development to have very high copper. So we should be on the lookout for it. We shouldn't put all our eggs in the basket of just monitoring serum copper. We should be watching those kind of white cell counts and platelets, etc. But the debate is zinc in excess doesn't reliably do this. It just doesn't. So it's like we've always got to be watchful, But and this probably just supports people's empirical experience, which mm. is 
but it often doesn't happen. And the researchers have sort of refined their way of talking about zinc toxicity. Like they say things like, look, let's be clear, the only time where this was demonstrated because they've tried to induce zinc toxicity Mm. through diet at, you know, drastically high dietary zinc intake levels and they can't do it. The patient never gets there. Mm, The only time that there has been this negative effect on copper has been in adults taking 50 milligrams of elemental zinc for weeks. Mm, So the researchers are kind of like saying, well, let's just be watchful, let's be mindful, but let's perhaps not be hysterical. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that the researchers are arguing for is to lift the UL in kids. Now they have a very strong argument to do this because the RCTs that have been done in pediatric populations using zinc at higher doses than the upper tolerable limit have generally proven to be safe and proven to be successful. Okay. So I know I'm kind of speaking in riddles because I am saying watch those kids really carefully. I've seen a few that have absolutely been overtreated and copper needs to stay high in kids. And these researchers are not saying give them the sky's the limit, Mm. but what they are arguing is there has never been evidence in a paediatric population at a scientific level that zinc will reliably uh, have a negative effect on copper. So they're just saying, yeah, those ULs, they sound like they're written in stone, but maybe they need to be a little bit higher than where they are and we need to be clear about the level of evidence. Mm, really interesting. And, and once again, you know, it does present more complexity than simplicity, mm. which makes it challenging. But I do think that we need to, you know, look at that cumulative dosing, the length mm. of the treatment. For me, I'm very mindful in clinical practice about how long somebody has been on these higher doses and that sometimes it's good to take a break from that. But I want to talk about the timing of the zinc dose because when you read about it, you know, it's, oh, we need to be away from from phytates. You know, it's great given with meat or fish or proteins and take it away from oxalates. I mean, sometimes it just gets really confusing on that front. Can you simplify the timing of the dose for us? (laughs) Oh, gee, you know, I've I've worked hard to try and simplify it, Emma. I'm not sure I get there because (laughs) like you, (laughs) I know too much. And I go, this is difficult. So in some ways, the answer is easy, right? The answer is really easy. You're going to laugh. Because if you look at all the evidence, the evidence says for optimal fractional zinc absorption, so that means, you know, your highest bioavailability Mm. factor, your highest uptake rate, you should just have zinc as a supplement, as a liquid in particular, on an empty stomach. Mm. And you and I go, mm. someone's going to get punched. Yeah. And it's going to be the practitioner that, re- yeah. that recommended that. Because we know that all forms of zinc are gastric irritants. Mm. And that gastric irritation can quickly progress to nausea and vomiting. Yeah. And we know that that's a surefire recipe to bring that on in susceptible patients. So... We go, oh, okay, (laughs) so probably not going to recommend that to my patient, even though on paper that is the ultimate way to maximise uptake and use least dose, best dose and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So really what we need to do is break down the elements of why that scenario is ideal and think about how do we get close to that. Yeah. So the reason why that scenario is ideal is because the first step of digestion of a zinc supplement in terms of all the forms we use at the moment, uh, chelates and salts, is solubilization. And solubilization requires a really high stomach acid or a very low pH. So we know that our stomach acid is at its highest when our stomach is empty. Mm. We can approach that perhaps in patients. We know that we have certain things we can use like lemon juice and apple cider vinegar and things like that that mimic or approach that very low pH. 
So, you know, maybe we employ those sort of things around the time of zinc dosing. We know that the reason why zinc ideally should be taken on an empty stomach is because zinc is always finding Mr. Wrong. Zinc, once it becomes solubilized, Mm -hmm. which means it becomes a free iron, just zinc hanging out on its own, it will very quickly hook up with other entities Mm. like the phosphorus in phytates that you mentioned, that's in nuts and seeds and fibre and whatever, or it'll hook up with calcium or it will hook up with an oxalate or, or, or. So again, we go, okay, not going to recommend my patient does this on an empty stomach, but certainly will not be encouraging them to have zinc around these kind of fibrous, high phosphorus sort of foods, Mm. yeah? We can try and get zinc to hook up with Mr. Right rather than Mr. Wrong, which follows your idea, which is provide it with amino acids. Mm. So, you know, favourable amino acids. So there is something in both zinc and iron nutriture that has been such a fascinating preoccupation for lots of clinicians and researchers, which is how these minerals are so radically more bioavailable when consumed in animal food. And it's not just the absence of phytates. It's something that we call the meat factor. But what we think that meat factor really is, is very particular amino acids. And those are histidine and cysteine, especially, Mm. to a lesser extent, lysine, that zinc likes to bind with. And funnily enough, these amino acids, zinc is bound to in most of its moieties in the body. So so like the uh, zinc finger protein motif, you know, Mm. which is how zinc is expressed over and over again. It's just bound to these amino acids. So this is its kind of natural mate. If we could consume zinc with these amino acids, so perhaps we're using a formula that has those in it, or perhaps we're compounding, or perhaps we say to our patient, look, have this first thing in the morning with a protein shake that is non-milk based. Mm. So you're using a protein that's a really good quality protein. You're not mixing it with any milk or milk substitute. You're actually mixing it with water or coconut water or something like that. Maybe then we're going to get closer to a situation that isn't ideal because people would just be taking it on an empty stomach. Mm. But because it's emetic, it's just unreal. So we have to kind of fashion these other ways. The other alternative is saying to people, and I like I often say with iron, you know, take your iron with a meat meal. Yeah. And so that's another thing that you can use is you can say to people, take your zinc with a meat meal. Now, a meat meal doesn't mean you ate a leg of cow. A meat meal means there was just some small quantity of animal product in it, particularly muscle. But... Because I've often got, you know, and I'm sure you you have the same kind of patients, patients who need zinc often need iron. So if they're doing their iron with the meat meal, that spot's already taken. And we don't actually like to use the two supplements Mm. together because there is plenty of research. It's been kind of modified over time, but we do know that iron and zinc don't compete when they're in food, right? When we eat meat, we get both of them. We absorb them beautifully. But when you're having them as supplements and the gut is being presented with larger quantities and potentially in an imbalanced ratio, Mm -hmm. more of one than the other, that's when you start to see the competition and antagonism and the impaired uptake. If I had a patient who wasn't doing any iron, I might say, look, take your zinc with a meat meal, no grains, no legumes, no nothing, just vegetables and meat. Mm. But for a lot of patients, that spot in their day is already occupied by iron. So I move zinc towards the top of the day and I talk about that kind of protein or amino acid combination. Okay, so essentially you're looking at the zinc in the morning with a protein 
Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then the iron if they need iron at night time. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it depends on the patient. There can be other things that you're trying to include in there that might change that pattern, but that's a reasonable place to start with a lot of people. Mm, okay, perfect. So we know that the world of nutrition, it's constantly shifting and there's some future perspectives around zinc and microbiota, some new understandings around the absorption And that might inform whether we should dose daily. Can you just give us some very high-level information around this and and what practitioners need to be across as our understanding does start to shift? I think this is where my um, reading recently um, in preparation for the Nutrient Prescribers Program on zinc has really, you know, this is the area where I was like, wow, because we all know the whole world has gone microbiota mad yeah. and uh, zinc, it would seem, has not escaped that, <laughs> that <No>. fixation. <laughs> so I guess a couple of things about that. I mean, I said at the very beginning, we need adequate zinc for eubiosis. We absolutely know one of the most consistent findings is if you are zinc deficient, you will have a lack of diversity. Mm. in your microbiome, you will have, you know, a deficiency and an imbalanced kind of dysbiosis. So we know, and, and because microbes all need the minerals like we do, they all microbes use what we call the first row transition metals, just like we do. So that's mm. iron, zinc, manganese, uh, cobalt, you know, etc. So it makes sense that it's going to have this powerful interface with our microflora. However, and something that a lot of practitioners have become alert to in the last few years is that appreciation for no nutrient, well, iodine maybe is the exception, but every other nutrient demonstrates less than 100% bioavailability. Mm. And something like iron has shockingly low bioavailability, you know, a non-heme form is under 10%, something Mm. like zinc. If you're using supplements, probably not far off that, probably Mm. 10%, something like that bioavailability, depending on the dose principally. So this awareness has crept in for practitioners about what happens to what is left behind. Mm. Because we know that that is a large quantity, much larger than you could ever get dietary-wise or anything like that, that is then a wash amongst your microflora. Mm. I said microbes demand, need, have an essential requirement for the first row transition metals. They are incredibly important for their survival, et cetera. So you go, hmm, Okay. This has been particularly showcased around iron, where we as a profession are increasingly aware that what happens to what's left behind in terms of somebody who's taking iron long term, particularly high dose, Mm. is that it starts to change the population's of microbiota Mm. and it doesn't necessarily change them for the better. So we are starting to see the same emerge for zinc. Okay. Now probably the most clear case of this, which I think is worth mentioning because I think it really illustrates how much levelling up we need to do with zinc, how much things have changed probably in the way you and I and a lot of the other practitioners were taught zinc, Mm. is that if you have someone with IBD, we would often think and know, because the literature absolutely um, speaks to this, that they have compromised zinc uptake Mm. as part of that inflammatory bowel disease. So a lot of us would put them on zinc And we might, in fact, be inclined to put them on more zinc because we know that their uptake is impaired. Mm. We say, well, you know, we've got to kind of compensate for that. The research now says that when we do that, if that patient with IBD happens to have clostridia present or needs to go on antibiotics, 
mm-hmm. and then clostridia becomes the opportunistic infection. It is the zinc excess in the lumen that actually will make that clostridia bloom. Mm, okay. So this is where I'm like, oh, yeah, we really need to level up. We really need to get on board with these big changes in our understanding about zinc kinetics Mm. because it really will change how we dose. Now, some key clinical pearls I have learned today is that zinc is actually in its infancy. We still have so much to learn. Mm. It does shine particularly in the areas of growth, immunity and gut health. And when looking at forms and dose, first consider what is your treatment objective. Mm. Match the objective to the form. Example, zinc carnosine for gut lining repair, or gluconate as a lozenge for respiratory viral infections. Remember that form changes function and dose changes function. Mm. And lastly, timing. Ideally, it's with animal protein and away from phytates. Now, before we finish, Rachel, I know you have your nutrient prescribers program kicking off soon. So what led you to actually write that program? I think it was going back to where we started, it was listening to practitioners, Mm, listening to practitioners and recognising that they didn't have a method, that there was this, I know this person needs B3. I know they, I believe they need B6. I think there's a zinc deficiency. I think they need magnesium. And then this kind of jumping off the cliff with all confidence and fingers crossed going, Mm. yeah, but I don't really know how to formulate from there. Like I would say to practitioners, how long will this, you know, you've you've given me a form and you've given me a dose. Quite frankly, I'm not quite sure where you've come at that from or or maybe I am. And then I would say, and how long? How will you know when you're there? Mm. And that would just get crickets. Yeah. And I would think this is not a weakness of this person. This is a weakness of our training. Yeah. And I think to be honest, we have been given in our training stronger methodology for herbal prescription yes. than we have for nutritional prescription. Yeah. Because as I said, we were just taught nutrients in isolation. We're like, well, they, you know, they need magnesium. Here are some so-called therapeutic dose ranges, which, by the way, highly debatable. And then we then try to cobble these things together and we don't have immediate clarity about form and timing and how those need to change based on the treatment objective Mm. and the host. So again, that framework that we're teaching in the MPP includes these steps that they go through. So they start with, you know, the pharmacokinetic model of micronutrients. So we talk them through LADME, which is thinking about liberation, absorption, distribution, metabolism, elimination. Mm. Sound boring is anything but. Because once you have all those nuts and bolts in place, then you know your nutrient that you're working with. And then you move into answering the questions about application, form, dose, host. Mm, And you kind of get yourself to that answer. I think in short, I know that nutrition is just such a powerful modality but I know that it is like you said really nuanced actually Mm. and so sometimes when I see myself writing prescriptions I feel like I'm not getting the best out of my tools because I'm kind of going up and up in dose and I think that's a surefire sign Mm. that you've got something wrong When I hear about the kind of magnesium doses that are being used out there, the kind of zinc doses, I'm like, oh, no, 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 back up. Yeah. (laughs) Back up. We, it's more nuanced than that. We've got something wrong here and we need to refine our thinking, follow a framework and therefore sharpen our tools so that we really get the most out of those nutritional prescriptions. Mm, And I, I love the sound of a framework. It also builds really good uh, levels of confidence in prescribing Mm. as well so a link to your program can be found in the show notes so make sure you head over there for more information thank you so much for joining us today rachel 
Thank you so much, Emma. You've been an absolute gem. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Emma Sutherland. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to FX Medicine and share us with your family, friends and colleagues. 